Great God in heaven, we thank you for all of the blessings that you give us. Lord, your mercies are new every morning. Father, thank you for showering us with love and kindness, grace and mercy. Father, as we turn our attention now to your holy word, we ask that you would be merciful to us once again. That you would speak in spite of a foolish preacher. Father, that your words would go forth and that mine would be stopped. That God, you would add your blessing to the reading, to the teaching, to the proclamation of your holy word. And that the power of your word would convict us, would pierce us to our hearts. God, but it would also encourage us and strengthen us, give us hope and assurance. Father, we come this day seeking those things from your word and your word alone. We ask that you would speak. We ask these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to you, God, our Father in heaven. Amen. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, and I hope that you do, I invite you to take them and turn with me once again to the book of Hebrews. We will be in Hebrews. We will pick up where we left off last week. We'll pick up from Hebrews chapter 5 beginning in verse 11. Hebrews chapter 5, beginning in verse 11. If you're working your way through the New Testament towards Hebrews, you're going to go through a lot of Paul's letters. You're going to get to Philemon, a very small letter. Right after Philemon is Hebrews. If you hit James, you went one book too far. Just go back one book to Hebrews chapter 5. We'll be reading beginning in verse 11 through chapter 6. As you find your place in sacred scripture, I would ask, if you're physically able, would you please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. As we look together now at the word of the Lord. About this, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment, trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible. In the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed. And its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust 
so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name and serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it. With an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. You may be seated. As we come to this passage this morning, you'll remember last week we spoke a lot about Jesus as high priest. Jesus as the eternal and infinite high priest, the high priest that no human, mere mortal could ever be. Jesus completely embodied the role of king, messiah, and high priest. And so what the author of Hebrews is going to do is take a time out from talking about Jesus as high priest. You'll see we get to the end of verse 10, we move into verse 11 of chapter 5, and we will return to the theme of high priest and what we saw at the end of chapter 6. So all of chapter 5, verse 11, through chapter 6, verse 20, is an aside that the writer of Hebrews is giving us, and then he will return to this idea of Jesus being our high priest. So he says, with all of these things in mind, he wants to um, go and challenge the readers to mature in their faith. He wants to issue a warning. He wants to issue a warning from walking away. He takes a time out from Jesus' high priestly nature so that he can explain to us and walk through with us the importance of remaining faithful and maturing in our faith. He rebukes the audience, the reader, for the lack of maturity in verses 11 through 14. Then he lists the basics that they should already know in verses 1 through 3. And he warns them about the danger of falling away. And that's where we're going to hang most of our hat and stay this morning in verses 4 through 8 of chapter 6. So he encourages his readers, but he also scolds them to start off. He says, you know, we ought to be able to move on past this, but it's hard to explain. Why is it hard to explain? It's not hard to explain because the principles are difficult. It's hard to explain because the audience has become dull of hearing. Have you ever been listening to somebody but not really listening to them? Like you're kind of thinking of something else and you hear Charlie Brown's teacher. I mean, husbands, you've never done this to your wife, but she's telling you something important and all you're hearing is, and then you look at her and go, oh, yeah, uh okay, sure. You have no idea what you just signed yourself up for. You have no idea what was just said for the last few minutes. That is the audience in Hebrews. By this point in the letter, you've gotten dull of hearing. We're still saying important and powerful things, but all you're hearing is... 
And you don't know what is going on. So it's not hard to explain these things. It's that you have a hard time listening to these things. And if we are in any indication now of how short the attention span is now, I can imagine that even then their attention span would turn away from things and it would be hard to stay focused and listening. They're dull of hearing. They're sluggish. So these basic principles, he gets to go back to milk and, instead of solid food. So he, he reviews what these basic principles are, these elementary doctrines. doctrines. So in verses 1 through 3, he says, Christian conversion through repentance. Repentance aside from works and faith is what saves. Washings, which could be a reference to baptism because the Greek here does use the same word for baptism in washings and laying on of hands. Maybe this is laying on the hands of someone to be called to ministry or called into service as a deacon or just laying on of hands to pray over the sick. These are elementary things that I shouldn't even have to recap is what the author of Hebrews is saying. And then lastly, the third recap is the resurrection of the dead and the eternal judgment. These are the things that we don't need to talk about anymore because you should know this stuff. So let's get on to something that is more difficult, that is more challenging, that requires you to be able to chew your own food instead of just drink the milk. So having addressed their spiritual maturity, he moves on to the biggest warning. Listen, there are five warning passages in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews is a book that is filled with warnings about us holding fast and remaining faithful. We saw a warning in chapter 2 and 3. But there's the biggest warning is here in chapter 6. It's the strongest warning for us to remain faithful. But he'll come back to this again in chapter 10 and 12. So this, this passage, verses six, four, chapter 6, verses 4 through 8, has been subject to tons of different interpretations. We are going to walk through four simple interpretations that are typical of this passage. But let's read verses 4 through 8 one more time to refresh your mind of exactly what we're talking about. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4. For it is impossible in the case of those who have been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit and tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and have fallen away. Those are six interjections, okay? It is impossible for one who has fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. Now listen, just a quick and cursory reading of that would make it seem like there are plenty who can and will fall away. And once they have fallen away, even if they tasted the goodness of God, even if they experienced the Holy Spirit, once they have fallen away, it would seem that the text is telling us it's impossible to restore them once again to repentance and to faith because they are crucifying Christ once again because their rejection of Christ is holding Christ in contempt. Here's the four ways that this is typically understood. Some people argue that these phrases do describe true Christians and true believers, implying that Christians can fall away and quote-unquote lose their salvation. There are a lot of people that believe it is very possible for a true Christian, for a true believer, one that is fully committed to Jesus Christ and following Him, to completely fall away and quote-unquote lose their salvation. That's one of the interpretations. 
Most who advocate this view hold that some who backslide can still return to Christian faith, and then it limits verses 4 through 6 to really hardened cases of turning away from the Lord and rejecting the Lord. That's when it's impossible to restore them again to repentance. But then again, where, where do you draw the line? At what point have you sinned so much and rejected Christ so much that it's impossible to restore you? At what point are you one of the hardened cases and at what point are you still salvageable? At what point are you still just backslidden and not completely um, apostate in your faith? Where, where's the line? We don't know. And the people who believe that interpretation, they don't know either. So there's a constant worry, a constant anxiety about if I commit one sin too many, or if I die with one sin unconfessed, that could be one sin too many and I lost my salvation. So I've got to repent and confess every time I sin and every time I can think about a time that I know that I have sinned. And if I don't repent and I don't confess and I don't turn, then it might be that one sin too many and I might stand before the gates and God might go, I'm sorry. I never knew you. Depart from me, you wicked and foolish man. Listen, that's no way to live, and that's not what the rest of Scripture teaches us. But that is how some people interpret this passage. Many people argue that although these people have participated fully in the Christian covenant, in the Christian community, where they experienced the instruction of God's Word, they saw public repentance occur, And the Holy Spirit was at work in powerful ways. When such people do fall away, it is clear that they are not true Christians because they have not made a true saving response to the gospel, resulting in genuine faith, love, and perseverance. Listen, we get examples of this in a passage that is related very closely to this one. Even in the language that we read about the thorns and the thistles and the briars and being burned up at the eternal judgment that was in chapter 6 ties us back to the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Matthew, and the Gospel of Luke. It's mentioned in all three. Jesus tells this parable, but let's read it together in Mark chapter 4. Look with me in Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 3. The Word of the Lord says, Listen. Jesus is speaking and telling a parable, and He says, Listen. Do not be dull of hearing. Listen to this. A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path. And the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil. And immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, it was scorched. And since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns. And the thorns grew up and choked it. And it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing and increasing and yielding thirtyfold, sixtyfold, and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables, and he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, that they may hear but not understand lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path 
where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold, sixtyfold, and a hundredfold. If we look at Hebrews 6, 4 through 8, through the lens of this parable that Jesus tells, we have to come to grips with a hard truth. The hard truth is there are going to be some people that walk down this aisle, that stand down here in front of us as a congregation, maybe even go through the waters of baptism, and they go through all of the correct actions, but you and I can't ever know their heart. The only one who knows what you really believe is you. You and the Lord are the only ones who know what you truly believe. And some people might be really good at faking it and not believing any of what this word says. And they show up week in and week out. They've been baptized. They walk the aisle. They profess faith. They pray. But in their heart, they don't believe. And they don't really care. And then struggles and hardships and trials come. And because they don't believe, they completely fall away. And folks, the hard truth is there are some people where the seeds fall and they have no root. There are some people where the seeds fall and immediately the crows come by and snatch it up. There are some people who are choked out by the thorns and the thistles and the briars. And then there are some people who yield 30, 60, and 100 fold. There are people who taste of the goodness of of God. They see what is going on. They experience the covenantal community of Christ in his church. And then they reject and walk away. They're choked out. They receive it with joy and then they have no root, so they walk away. Folks, that's the hard truth. I can't tell you the number of preachers that have stood up at a funeral and preached over someone who wandered away from the faith and wandered into open, unrepentant sin that they never showed any grief or remorse for. And that preacher stands up and says, no, 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 they prayed a prayer one time and so they were definitely saved. It's, it's all fine and good if you want to comfort a family that's mourning. But find another way to comfort them if you don't know where somebody's salvation is. If you don't know where someone's faith truly lies, don't lie to them and give them false hope and false assurance because there is true hope and true assurance and it's in God's Word. We can't know. I hope and I pray that those who are going through the actions and walking through what Scripture tells us to be Christ-centered community are saved. But in your heart, In your spirit, you may not believe at all. You may just be doing this because this is what your parents always did. You may just show up once a month because you got to check a box. And you know, I'm supposed to be in church. It's culturally acceptable to be in church. If I want to make my way into the hierarchy of the community or the communal politics of the area, I better be in a church somewhere. I better show up every now and again. And when you're here, you're the nicest, 
most kind and genuine seeming person. But I don't know. Only you can know. Whether the seed took root. Whether you believed the word. And so some people interpret this passage and say, most definitely this is talking about you can lose your salvation. And I say that that is a false and poor and weak interpretation. Because the fact of the matter is, it's messier than what we'd like for it to be. We want clean-cut, clarified categories where I can say, that person's saved and that person's not. And this person's on the fence and that person's definitely going to hell because I can see it. We want that. But it's messier than that. There are four types of soil. And some people will fall away that look like it's true. And that's hard. And it hurts our hearts. There's two other ways that people interpret this passage. Let's keep moving forward. Another view is that these kind of warnings are addressed to true believers. And though they will never fall away completely, the warnings are the means that God uses to challenge us to persevere in our faith. And so preserve those who are saved. That way of interpreting is linked very closely to Acts 27. So turn with me to the book of Acts chapter 27. This is an example of what is meant by these warning passages being kind of like a cattle prod, being like a goad to keep us in line and keep us walking down the straight path. A warning passage that says, listen, if you don't remain, if you're not faithful, then you can fall away. So remain faithful. What happens in Acts chapter 27 is Paul is on a journey and there are 276 people on this journey with them. And he told them before they started out, this is a bad time to travel. But people are sailors and they've been sailing their whole life. And they said, Paul, you are a preacher and we are sailors and we know what we're doing. So we're going to go on and go. And Paul said, suit yourself, whatever you want to do. So then we get here in verse 21 and they are shipwrecked, and they are in all sorts of dire straits. So verse 21 in Acts chapter 27, Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and have not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet, now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid. Paul, you must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who will sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. When the 14th night had come, As we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little further on, they took another sounding and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless... These men stay in the ship. You cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. You might be thinking, oh my goodness, pastor, what does that have to do with anything? 
There's 276 people on this boat, and Paul gets a vision. An angel visits him, a direct messenger from God, speaking with the very authority of God himself, saying, none of these people will perish, period. Have confidence, have faith. So Paul relays that message to all 276. You're not going to lose a single one of them. So then if that's the confident assurance that they have, why would Paul issue a warning that if these sailors lower the lifeboat and get in the boat, he can't promise that they're going to live anymore? You know what happens? They cut the ropes, the boat sails away, and all 276 are saved. So did the Lord give Paul that message? And then Paul gave the warning to keep the sailors in line with God's will to save them? Or could they really have walked away and God had been wrong? Yeah. There's a figure that one out kind of a question. The warning passages exist in a similar fashion. God has said, if you believe, you will be kept. And the warning passages are there to serve as a guide, as a goad, as a, as, as a cattle prod to keep us in line and on the straight and narrow. How many of us as true believers have read this passage? You don't have to raise your hand, but you thought, oh, Lord Jesus, don't let that be me. Don't let me fall away. God, I want to be faithful. I want to be true. I don't want to be one of the ones that falls away. If you've ever had those thoughts, you're probably in a good place. When people come into my office and they say, Preacher, I just don't know if I've got certainty in my salvation. I just, I, I, I wandered at a point in my life and now I'm back and I don't know. Was I really saved here? Was I saved here? What do I do? And how do I know I'm not going to wander away again? And I'm like, the fact that you care says a lot about you. Folks, don't think that I stand up here and never have a doubt. There are plenty of times where I go, you know what? I think I'd make a pretty good truck driver. I should probably just give all this up and be a truck driver. I don't, I don't know if it's worth all this. Let me go get my CDL and get a truck driving job. I could be gone two or three days a week. I probably see my family more than I do right now. I just, I'd just be a truck driver. You know, I got a degree in Spanish. I, I could just get my teacher certificate and be a teacher and we could figure out a way to make it. I could give up all this and just keep moving on. Don't act like those thoughts don't ever cross my mind. I know that you have doubts about your faith. Is God really real? Should I keep going to church? What should I do? How do I persevere in this faith? But God will hold us fast. And some people interpret God holding us fast as these warning passages saying, don't depart. Stay the course. And there's a fourth way that people interpret this passage. The fourth view is that the falling away described has to do with the loss of heavenly rewards. That this is not a loss of salvation, so to speak. This is a loss of heavenly rewards. And y'all, we're just not going to spend a lot of time on this one because there's just not a lot of good evidence to support it. Okay? This is a, this is a good attempt at somebody trying to offer extra assurance, but really and truly, this is talking about whether or not you will be with Jesus in heaven, not whether or not you'll get five crowns or ten crowns. Okay? This is that's a poor interpretation of the passage. So what do we do then? How do we walk away this morning from a passage that challenges us in this way? Listen, the reason that the writer of Hebrews ends with Abraham is because God is faithful to fulfill his promises. Over and over and over again in Scripture, we are reminded that God is the one who will remain faithful to us. Look with me at just a few passages. First Peter chapter 1 verses 3 through 7. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, 
He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. If you truly believe in Jesus, He will hold you fast. He is the one that holds us fast to our salvation. It is an inheritance that is imperishable. It is undefiled. It is unfading. It is kept in heaven for us who by God's power are being guarded. By God's power we are being guarded in true and genuine faith. 2 Timothy 1.2 2 Timothy 1.12 Sorry, 1.12 which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed. There are hymns written straight out of this verse. For I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. For I know whom I have believed and he will guard. He is able to keep me and help me to persevere. Romans eight thirty five through 39 who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it, is being, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you believe in Jesus and it is true and genuine faith, nothing can separate you from His love. Philippians 1, 6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus. It is up to Jesus to keep on going with the good work that he started in those of us who have true faith. Lastly, John 10, John 10, verses 25 to 30. Jesus answered them, I told you. And you do not believe the works that I do in my father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. After Jesus says this, they pick up stones to kill him because he just confessed to being the same as the Father. And only those who follow him are his sheep. He knows the sound of the voice of his sheep. His sheep know the sound of his voice. They are in his hand and no one can pluck them 
from His hand. Whether He uses passages in Hebrews to warn us and keep us on the straight and narrow, whether He uses trials and temptations and struggles to mold us and form us and purify us, whether He does anything else that allows us to stray but be drawn back, if you believe in Jesus Christ, Truly believe and follow that belief up by following him. You will be preserved. You will persevere until the very end. But this morning I got to ask. Are you really one of the sheep? You heard it from Peter. You heard it from Paul. You heard it from Jesus. If you are his sheep, no one can pluck you from his hand. But I wonder this morning, are you really one of His sheep? Are you really following Him and trusting in Him? Are you like the Father in Mark chapter 9 that cries out and says, I I do believe, Lord, but help my unbelief. It's okay to be in those seasons of doubt and say, I believe, but help my unbelief. Or maybe you're just here this morning because it's what you're supposed to do. You're going through the motions. You're trying to look outwardly like a good Christian. You want to look like one of the sheep, but you know you're not. Folks, there's four types of soil. Only one type yields 30, 60, and 100 fold. Only true believers will persevere until the end. And so, I ask you this morning, this is a question not to scare you. This is a question that can only be known between you and And God Almighty, are you a true believer in Jesus Christ? Are you really one of His sheep? Let's pray. God, we ask that Your Spirit would move in this time, that You would make it abundantly clear to us, each of us individually, And give us the assurance of our salvation. But Father, if there's no assurance to be had, I pray that you convict us, Lord. Open our eyes and our ears to see and to hear. Not just to taste, but Lord, to fully dive in and follow you and give you our lives. Give you everything we have and everything we are. Lord, please move in these moments. Convict us. Give us strength and assurance. We ask for your mercy. We ask these things in Jesus Christ. Amen.